Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of kidnapping, harm against minors, and death of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Powerful, renowned, wealthy. These aren't words you'd usually use when describing a social worker, but Georgia Tan was all three. Initially, she delved into the world of adoption out of a desire to help people, but she stayed when she realized what it could do for her. Eventually, it gave her access to a whole new world, one filled with glamour and celebrity, where she could rub elbows with the rich and fabulous. For two long decades, Georgia was the ultimate insider. And once she got that status, she was willing to do anything to keep it. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last week, we watched as Georgia Tan got her start in the world of adoption, placing legitimate orphans into adoptive homes. But when she realized that adoption could be a lucrative business, Georgia shifted gears. She tore children from their biological parents and charged wealthy couples for the chance to adopt the kids. Today, we'll dive deeper into Georgia's enterprise. We'll see how she enticed others to join her and expanded her operation across the country. Then we'll explore the height of Georgia's power and the lengths she went to to keep herself on top. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In December of 1929, 38-year-old Georgia Tan offered Tennesseans the chance of a lifetime. If prospective parents could tell her why they deserved a child, they could win a little miracle of their own. Georgia was the executive director of the Tennessee Children's Home, and she had way too many children in her charge, thanks in part to her nefarious means of finding orphans. To get them off her hands, she advertised a Christmas giveaway in a local newspaper. It was an orphan giveaway, and no one seemed to think it was weird. In fact, the campaign was so popular that Georgia placed 25 kids before the year was up. So she did it again the next year and the year after that. The Christmas ads were Georgia's bread and butter, Other papers around the country picked them up, which meant that news of Georgia's work spread from coast to coast. Soon, she wasn't just working with Southern families. She had couples calling in from as far away as Los Angeles. Things were going so well for Georgia that in the early 1930s, she needed to bring more people in to help with her scheme. But she had to be careful. She didn't want people blabbing to the authorities if they didn't like the way she did business. Not that it would really matter. Georgia had plenty of friends in high places. Still, she knew it'd be better to find people who saw things her way. Luckily for Georgia, she knew just a woman. It's not clear how Georgia and Judge Camille Kelly first crossed each other's paths, but sometime around 1935, 44-year-old Georgia struck a deal with the judge. In exchange for a cut of the profits, 
Kelly agreed to send any kids she separated from criminal parents to Georgia's orphanage. But here's the thing, she didn't even have to wait for them to enter her courtroom. Kelly also had the authority to go out and round up more kids for Georgia. Through a connection in the welfare department, Kelly was alerted whenever a vulnerable parent applied for assistance or lost their job. Once that happened, Kelly would send out a deputy to arrest them on some bogus charge. Then she'd award custody of their child to Georgia. From there, Georgia moved quickly. She'd have the kids sold off to a new family before anyone even realized what had happened. And when they finally did it, it was far too late. No amount of tears from children or their biological parents could change what had been done. Meanwhile, Georgia blocked the whole thing out like it had never even happened. Before we continue with this episode's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. In one study, psychological scientists Mariam Kuchaki and Francesca Gino found that, quote, when people behave unethically, they engage in a range of self-serving behaviors to reduce their feelings of dissonance and discomfort. This can include a phenomenon called unethical amnesia, that's when a person strategically forgets their own bad behavior so that they don't have to look at themselves too hard in a mirror. It's a way to deter any type of self-reflection. In some cases, it can be so strong that the person actually has trouble recalling memories of their unethical actions. So it's entirely possible that the memory of what actually went down slipped from Georgia's mind. The images of distressed families she ripped apart faded away, leaving her conscience clear before she settled on her next victims. To add even more legitimacy to her operation, Georgia hired lawyer Abe Waldauer, and according to multiple sources, he was like her very own attack dog. If a birth parent kicked up a fuss, he made their legal suit disappear. If someone sued the children's home, he went to court on Georgia's behalf. Georgia, Judge Kelly, and Waldauer were the ringleaders of the gang. But while their two deputies took care of the legal aspects that sent kids Georgia's way, they weren't the ones doing the dirty work of finding them. That job went to the spotters. All around the city, Georgia employed various social workers, nurses, doctors, and lawyers to do her bidding. Some got kickbacks for their efforts. Others were reportedly intimidated by Georgia and her high-profile friends and just did whatever she said. The spotters kept their eye out for a particular type of parent, usually an unwed mother who was poor, sick, or both. Then they'd alert Georgia. If the woman was pregnant, Georgia waited until the mother was in the hospital giving birth. Once the child was born, Georgia convinced her to sign some papers while she was still under heavy sedation. There was always a handy lie to go along with it. They were dispatch forms, she explained, or permissions for a certain medical test. But really, they were legal contracts, likely drafted by Waldauer, that gave Georgia full custody of the children. By the time the mother regained her senses, Georgia and the newborn were already gone. And it seems like the nurses and doctors who were supposed to protect such parents all looked the other way. Many of the mothers were told their babies had been stillborn. 
But Georgia wasn't always so sneaky. Sometimes birth mothers knew exactly what was going on, but gave up their children because they were under duress. Like if they needed medical care, some doctors withheld it until they agreed to hand their baby over to Georgia. It was, in a word, gross. Once Georgia had the kids in her possession, she tampered with their birth certificates. She altered their birth dates to make them seem younger, changed last names to make them untraceable, even erased medical histories to hide any perceived flaws. She even rewrote their religious backgrounds. Looking for a Protestant baby? You got one. You wanted a Jewish newborn? No problem. Georgia was so liberal with the facts, she probably couldn't even keep them straight. But that didn't matter, so long as her clients got what they'd ordered. And Georgia got paid. By the time 1940 rolled around, business was booming, and 49-year-old Georgia was living large. With the money she raked in, she paid for her daughter's college tuition at Ole Miss. For herself, she splurged on fine furs, cars, and several properties, her favorite of which was a seven-acre estate on the outskirts of Memphis. She often retreated there with her longtime roommate and probable partner, 41-year-old Anne Atwood Hollinsworth. They loved getting up early in the morning and riding their horses together. Life on the estate was calm, serene, but Georgia always found herself drawn back to the city, back to the bustling streets, back to the business of adoption. At this point, her network was on a roll. Judge Kelly was reportedly responsible for nearly 20% of the kids placed in Georgia's care, and the rest of her spotters were operating at a rapid level. She had more children than she could handle, and she was sending them all around the country. That's where Alma Walton and Regina Wagner came in. Once every three weeks, each woman boarded a plane. Walton always took a 3 a.m. flight to California, while Wagner left two hours later for New York. Both carried at least four to six babies with them, every trip. Once they landed, the women checked into a hotel. Then they waited for overjoyed new parents to come and collect their children. During the handoff, Walton and Wagner asked that a check be made out to Georgia Tan. Georgia charged approximately $700 per adoption, which was close to an entire year's wages at the time. And despite the eye-watering amount, Walton and Wagner always assured clients that the fees were merely transportation costs. The parents were paying for the flight and hotel, nothing more. The eager parents bought the lie, hook, line, and sinker. As far as they were concerned, Georgia was bringing joy to families all across the nation, and they praised her for it. Unsurprisingly, all that ego-stroking went to Georgia's head, and it made her think the world was hers for the taking. But no one's untouchable. Coming up, Georgia finds out just how human she really is. 
They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when mommy dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this podcast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. By 1940, 49-year-old Georgia Tan had her operation down pat. Thanks to friends in high places, it seemed like she could get away with anything. But by the following year, trouble was brewing. Word got around that Georgia wasn't thoroughly investigating couples to determine if they'd make good parents. There was also speculation that her staff didn't have the proper education or training. So in 1941, the National Child Welfare League dropped Georgia's Tennessee Children's Home from their membership. The move was supposed to make Georgia less credible. They thought people would stop doing business with her, but the CWL underestimated Georgia's hold on Memphis. And as far as we can tell, it hardly affected her business. Georgia simply shrugged off their snub and moved on. She didn't need their stamp of approval. She'd do whatever made her the most money, even if it was at the cost of the children's welfare. That much was obvious when later that year, when the orphanage was hit with a diarrhea epidemic, Georgia had a medical advisor named Dr. Clyde Crosswell. He was a well-known pediatrician in town and worked with the Tennessee Children's Home often. But on this occasion, they didn't see eye to eye. Dr. Crosswell wanted to shut down the entire facility. He told Georgia to move the kids somewhere else for two weeks so the home could be cleaned and sterilized. But all Georgia could think about was the potential lost revenue. Not only would she have to shell out money to board the kids elsewhere, she wouldn't be able to take in any new wards either. That wasn't an option. So Georgia ignored his advice. She had the bare minimum amount of sanitizing done, but that was it. Even as kids got sicker, she refused to do anything about it. They were so dehydrated and their bodies so weak that some even died. And still, Georgia refused to do anything. She looked the other way and allowed the kids to keep falling ill. For her, it was a cost-benefit analysis. It was cheaper to let children die than it would have been to fix the problem. Sadly, as a result, somewhere between 40 to 50 kids died over the next four months. Georgia never reported their deaths, and we don't know exactly what she did with the bodies. It's speculated that some were sent to a local cemetery, others were cremated or buried in the backyard. 
In the aftermath of this epidemic, Dr. Crosswell went to the board of directors of the children's home, but it was no use. Georgia was nigh untouchable. The board didn't want to believe she was capable of such horrendous things, so the doctor's accusations were swept under the rug, and he was dismissed. Georgia was certainly pleased by their decision. She saw Dr. Crosswell the same way she did the kids. He was weak and therefore disposable. She believed that only the fittest deserved to survive. Which is somewhat ironic because just a few years later, Georgia found herself in a vulnerable medical situation. In 1945, during a trip to the doctors, 54-year-old Georgia learned that she had cancer. No doubt this was upsetting news, but in typical Georgia fashion, she refused to be made weak. She declined surgery, got a prescription for painkillers, and got right back to work. But really, she had no other choice. Around this time, the Tennessee legislature was threatening to pass a bill that outlawed unlicensed boarding homes. And this was a major problem for Georgia. You see, her main facility only housed about 30 kids at once. But that wasn't the problem, because Georgia didn't just have 30 kids. And the rest of the children under her control were boarded in various facilities throughout the city. And none of those places had the proper licenses. So Georgia shrugged off the looming medical threat so she could focus on what really mattered to her, her business. She started by going through her Rolodex of connections. She'd met plenty of politicians throughout the years. She'd even set up some of them with their own adopted children. They were indebted to her. And it's likely that some of them knew that Georgia wasn't on the up and up. A case in point, one powerful Memphis politician was about to become a grandfather. It was time for a celebration. But when the child was stillborn, to spare his daughter from heartache, the man called Georgia for help. And he wasn't disappointed. Georgia moved so fast that she managed to deliver a newborn to the hospital before the woman even woke up from anesthesia. When she finally did, the woman believed the baby placed in her arms was hers. This was only one story of many, but it shows just how much leverage Georgia had over these politicians. If they didn't do as she asked, she could easily expose all their secrets. So when it came time to pass the bill, Georgia convinced the lawmakers to add a clause. Any boarding home used by her agency was exempt. With that, Georgia's operation continued to flourish. By this point, she'd placed hundreds, if not thousands of children in homes. The sheer number of illegal adoptions suggests it was a massive operation with a lot of players. But despite the scale of her enterprise, Georgia continued to do her own dirty work. She could have had other people doing it for her, but maybe she liked the thrill of the hunt. One of these expeditions happened in the spring of 1946, when 55-year-old Georgia visited an apartment building in a poor part of Memphis. She made her way up and down the hallways, knocking on doors. She told the residents she was investigating an alleged child abuse case involving one of their neighbors. In reality, she was casing the joint. When a 20-something woman named Alma answered one of the doors, Georgia knew she'd found the perfect victim. 
Georgia gave her the spiel about who she was and why she was there, and Alma actually recognized her name. Despite being dropped by the Child Welfare League, the Tennessee Children's Home still had an excellent reputation, so Alma had no reason not to believe Georgia's story. As they talked, Georgia peered into Alma's apartment. There was a pull-out sofa and a crib next to it, and there, poking her little head out, was Alma's daughter, Irma. She had dimpled cheeks and reddish blonde hair. Georgia knew a kid like that would go for big money. At the time, little Irma was sniffling, and Georgia saw an opportunity. She turned back to Alma and asked if her baby needed a checkup. Alma looked to the floor. It was true, her daughter was sick, and she didn't have money for a doctor. Georgia feigned a look of concern, then offered her assistance. She said she could get Irma proper medical care using her connections. But Georgia warned Alma that if she went with them, the mother would be charged a fee. So Georgia had to take Irma to the hospital alone. In hindsight, the red flags were there. But like I said, people trusted Georgia Tan. Plus, Alma was a poor, single mother who was concerned her daughter was really sick. So when Georgia handed her a piece of paper, Alma signed it without stopping to check what it was for. Then Georgia grabbed the document, gathered up Irma, and promised to bring her back as soon as they were done. But the hours ticked away, and Georgia never returned. By the following day, Alma was frantic. Despite Georgia's warning that she'd get a bill, she went to the hospital. To her relief, Alma found her little girl in the children's ward, and Irma seemed to be doing much better. She was even jumping up and down in her bed. But when Alma asked to take her child home, a nurse looked at her in confusion. She had to be mistaken. All those children belonged to the Children's Home Society. Alma staggered back, shocked. That couldn't be true. She explained that Irma was her daughter, that there'd been some kind of mix-up. But no matter what she said, the nurse wouldn't allow Alma to take her own baby. Over the next few days, Alma called Georgia over and over again. Every call was ignored. Eventually, Georgia picked up, but it wasn't with good news. She told Alma that her daughter had died of pneumonia and the state had already taken the body away. Alma found that hard to believe. She'd only just seen her daughter and she looked perfectly happy and healthy. Was this really the truth or was she going crazy? The panicked mother lost her temper and Georgia grimaced. She hated dealing with emotion, so she hung up. Alma's desperation was irrelevant to Georgia anyway. Little Irma was already hundreds of miles away in Ohio with her new adoptive family. But Alma refused to accept Georgia's lies. She called again and again, but Georgia continued to ignore her calls. Whenever Alma got through to someone else from the children's home, they told her Georgia had nothing to say to her. Case closed. Georgia had matters to deal with more pressing than an emotional mother. As her empire grew, she became something of a household name for those in the market for a child. By the late 1940s, she was the most prolific adoption arranger in the country. 
When she wasn't running the show in Memphis, she traveled across the country giving speeches on the future of adoption. She was asked to collaborate on a book about adoption. Magazines and newspapers wrote glowing articles. She was even invited to Franklin D. Roosevelt's presidential inauguration. Later, the first lady called to ask for Georgia's insight on child welfare. In other words, she was a capital B big deal. And Georgia loved it. Being on a first-name basis with anyone who had an ounce of clout made her feel important. And the list of people indebted to her grew longer by the day. She orchestrated adoptions for movie stars like Joan Crawford, June Allison, Lana Turner, and Dick Powell. The latter even called Georgia, quote, one of the most reliable people he'd ever known. That's likely because Georgia always bent over backwards for her most famous clients. According to psychologist James Horan, it's human nature to pay special attention to people at the top of a social hierarchy. That's because doing so offers a roadmap for figuring out how someone can reach that top tier themselves. We look at people who've made it and figure that by emulating them, we can emulate their success. But when the celebrity fascination goes too far, it leads to parasocial relationships, a term coined for a one-sided relationship between fans and stars. Georgia teetered right on the edge of this. She was more than a fan, but not quite a real friend. But in her mind, because these stars were asking for her help, they were on a level playing field. And she latched onto the idea that she belonged to this inner circle of the rich and famous. And in a way, she wasn't wrong. She was at the peak of her power and running a well-oiled machine. But even the most reliable systems have cracks. And Georgia's was about to splinter. Coming up, a politician becomes a thorn in Georgia's side. Now back to the story. By the end of the 1940s, 58-year-old Georgia was living the dream. Her shady, but not quite illegal adoption business was raking in huge amounts of money, and she'd cultivated a glowing reputation as one of the foremost thinkers in the field of adoption. But then rumors started swirling about a black market baby operation in Memphis. There'd been whispers around town for years, but they were finally gaining legs. So in 1949, Senator Davis Wooten proposed a bill to reform the adoption practices in Tennessee. If passed, it would, among other things, impose a six-month waiting period for all out-of-state adoptions and require that they were signed off on by the Department of Public Welfare. Ordinarily, adoption agencies conducted any inquiries themselves, but as Georgia had proved, that system was ripe for corruption. Wooten's bill would change all that. So Georgia fought back. She argued that delaying adoptions would be detrimental to children. She also warned that if the Department of Public Welfare was involved, all their investigations would be public record, which would harm parent-child confidentiality. Of course, the real reason Georgia opposed the bill was because it would mess with her operation. If there were proper investigations, her adoptions would take longer and not every client would be approved. And that meant a lot less money for Georgia. 
After a career of collecting them, Georgia called in all her favors. She asked adoptive parents to write to their state representatives to vote against the law. She persuaded associations she was involved in to lobby on her behalf, too. She even invited Senator Wooten to lunch and tried to convince him to drop the bill. When all that didn't work, she turned to outright blackmail. The specifics of what happened are murky, but somehow she got to a U.S. attorney, a congressman, and an influential real estate magnate. All of them had adopted children through Georgia, and she made it clear in no uncertain terms that if they didn't help her, she'd tell the birth parents exactly where their kids were. I want to stop here and make it clear that most of Georgia's clients had no idea that their kids had been stolen. But once they did learn the truth, there were very real fears that biological parents would try to take them back. Georgia had promised this would never happen, but her clients knew she wasn't a woman to be tested. And her desperation must have had some people worried as the bill edged closer to a vote. When that time came, the bill actually passed, despite Georgia's best efforts. But then something strange happened. In the time between the vote and the final version being typed up and sent to the governor's desk for signing, it got doctored. But the only part of the bill missing was the paragraph about the out-of-state waiting period and clearance process that Georgia was so opposed to. Someone she'd gotten to had done exactly what she asked of them and made sure she stayed on the right side of the law. But despite her roundabout victory, Georgia wasn't as untouchable as she seemed. In the end, it wasn't a politician who got the best of her, and it wasn't an angry parent who managed to bring her down. It was her own body. Sometime around 1950, 59-year-old Georgia's cancer worsened, and she was hospitalized. We don't know how exactly she dealt with this development, but knowing her, she was likely in denial. She'd always been able to fight her way out of things before. Surely this time would be no different. Instead of dwelling on her illness, she used it to feed her legacy. She reportedly ordered her employees to send her get well cards, but she had them sign them from her famous friends. Well wishes poured in from the likes of Joan Crawford and President Truman, but not really from them, which Georgia knew, which is weird, right? Weird though she might have been, with Georgia in the hospital, it seems the group of men she'd blackmailed the year earlier finally found the courage to speak out. They went to the newly elected governor, Gordon Browning, and told him how she'd forced them to amend the law. Governor Browning was appalled and vowed to make things right. He assigned Memphis attorney Robert Taylor to the case, and the investigation against Georgia was officially on. But while Taylor dug up plenty of circumstantial evidence, he needed someone to go on the record. That was the best way to prove, without a doubt, that Georgia Tan was involved in a black market adoption scheme. And he figured the best person to do that was one of Georgia's own employees. So in September of 1950, he tailed Alma Walton, one of the women who ferried babies across state lines, all the way to her hotel in Los Angeles. 
When Taylor confronted Walton, she broke down in tears. Whether it was self-pity or because she truly felt guilt, it's hard to say. But there might have been a part of her that was just relieved to be caught, because she clearly knew what she'd been doing was wrong. And she told Taylor everything, how nearly 5,000 kids had been stolen, how almost all of them had been placed in families across state lines, and how Georgia had pocketed over a million dollars in the process. For context, the average home price in Tennessee was just over $5,000 at the time. With everything Walton had told him, Taylor had exactly what he needed, kind of because charging Georgia with breaking adoption laws was going to be tricky, mainly because she'd made sure they didn't apply to her. Of course, there was always extortion. Georgia had blackmailed people in her fight to change laws to suit her. If those people spoke out, Taylor could charge her for a crime. But no one wanted to come forward. They'd have to admit what they'd done for Georgia, and they might end up in hot water themselves. So, with limited options, Taylor decided to go after Georgia for something he knew he could nail her on, income tax evasion. Despite this somewhat innocuous charge, the full story about Georgia's quote-unquote business enterprise broke later that month. At first, it was just an expose in the local Memphis papers, but then the New York Times picked it up, and soon the entire country knew the ugly truth. As the story circulated, movie stars like Joan Crawford and Dick Powell were written about right alongside Georgia's henchmen, Judge Camille Kelly and lawyer Abe Waldauer. As far as we can tell, Georgia never read a word of it. By this point, she was bedridden. The cancer had taken hold and she didn't have much time left. No doubt her partner Anne and her daughter June hid the papers. There was no reason for Georgia to read what everyone was saying about her. Just days after the story dropped, 59-year-old Georgia passed away. Robert Taylor still wanted to pursue Georgia posthumously, but Governor Browning reportedly said no. So Georgia was never officially charged with any crime, neither were any of her accomplices. This meant that the only ones who paid a price for Georgia's crimes were her victims. With the truth finally out, many birth parents tried to get their children back. They filed habeas corpus petitions, which usually determine whether a state is illegally detaining a prisoner. It made sense here, since thousands of children had been unlawfully kidnapped and essentially detained in homes that were not actually theirs. Unfortunately, Tennessee's lawyers didn't seem to want to admit to the level of wrongdoing that had occurred under Georgia's reign. If they helped a few parents, more might come out of the woodwork. It would be an unmanageable nightmare. Not to mention some of those same politicians didn't want to give their own kids up, even after they knew the truth. In a heartbreaking decision, the Tennessee legislature passed a law that legitimized all of Georgia's illegal adoptions and sealed the records. 
Surprisingly, many people agreed with this decision. As horrific as George's crimes were, public opinion was that the adopted kids had landed in better homes. Their adoptive parents were more affluent and therefore could give the children better opportunities. What's more, many of the families had already assimilated into a new normal. It would be barbaric to separate them all now, kind of like the way Georgia stole the kids in the first place. What lawmakers failed to consider were all of the psychological effects. According to researchers Deborah Silverstein and Sharon Kaplan, adoptees experience many issues even as they grow into adults. They often deal with intense feelings of rejection from their new families and grief for what they've lost. They also wrestle with their identity. Without knowing where they came from, they feel incomplete, deficient, or unfinished. Lots of Georgia's adoptees struggled in their new homes. The worst part for many was the unknown of it all. But in the years after Georgia's death, some people tried to remedy her evils. In Tennessee, an organization called Right to Know started helping adoptees and biological parents uncover adoption records. In 1989, there was even an Unsolved Mysteries episode about Georgia and her operation. Prior to this, many of Georgia's victims never even knew who she was. But after watching the episode, they put two and two together. Remember Alma, the single mom with the red-headed baby? Well, she saw the episode too. And after 44 years of being apart, she found Irma's adoption records and reunited with her daughter. The two have reconciled, according to the Los Angeles Times. Still, Alma and Irma were some of the lucky ones. Plenty of other children who were kidnapped by Georgia never got to meet their birth parents. Either they couldn't find them, or they were long gone by the time they went looking. Needless to say, the effects of Georgia's actions can still be felt generations later. She may have done some good in popularizing adoption in America, but that's overshadowed by all of the atrocities she committed. Ultimately, that's what Georgia Tan will be remembered for. Her cruelty, her callousness, and the immeasurable pain she caused so many. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Georgia Tan, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Baby Thief by Barbara Byzance Raymond, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson.
For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.